Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, August 7th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Editor, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers, Huatran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, let's dive into it. Let's talk about what we've been up to. Uh, This week, I launched a Patreon for uh, the YouTube channel, Ordinary Adventures, that I do alongside my girlfriend, Ketra. You've heard about it in the past. We go to theme parks, or we did go to theme parks before the world became you know, a hellscape. <laughs> and um, we do three videos a week. We, we started around the opening of Galaxy's Edge and the plan was to just like do like one video a month. And somehow that th- things uh, skyrocketed. <laughs> you know, the, 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 we, we got a lot of followers really early. And we, we at the time we were going to theme parks like, you know, once a week. So we ended up doing like three videos a week. And what was happening is, uh, you know, I was working my day job at slashfilm.com and at night editing these videos and then on the weekends going to the theme parks and the things 
and uh, it became to be a little bit much. <laughs> and I, uh, thankfully, things blew up in a way. Uh, Kitra at the time, she had she was working with animals, and then uh, she was delivering food on Uber. She was doing Uber Eats, and at the time, our our channel blew up to a point that uh, we could afford to pay Kitra to, to not deliver food with uber and i taught her how to edit and she's been editing the videos for i don't know a long time now uh at least the last six months and um she's been or actually way more than that because way six months probably before the pandemic and uh so this pandemic hit and as probably many of you out there probably know the you know, advertising industry took a huge hit because n- none of you out there are going out and buying things. And, uh, you know, Hollywood isn't making things for you to buy. <laughs> and thus, the, the things are not, you know, companies aren't advertising things. And thus, like, you know, uh, and, and also combined with that, uh, p- people aren't looking for videos about theme parks in, in anticipation for their vacations to theme parks because they're not going. <laughs> on vacations and all this led to we had a massive crash in our advertising on uh ordinary adventures and uh thankfully we had saved up enough money in the the good times uh to still pay Kitra um to, to edit but we came to this point where it was we were having these conversations Kitra was thinking about you know maybe she'll go back and do some uber uh delivery and we'll cut back on the videos maybe we won't do three videos a week we'll do like one video a week and uh we we thought about doing a patreon because i'm a i'm a a backer of i'm not sure if you guys back any patreons but i back um one of my favorite podcasts podcast the ride which is this theme park podcast i back them on patreon and i back i back a couple different patreons and i i kind of like patreon because you get to give back to creators and usually those creators will give you like something extra in return, like a bonus episode or something like that. So what we can, this is a long story. I'm sorry to take you down this, this, this uh, road, but basically we decided to launch a Patreon for ordinary adventures so that we can continue doing this, that, you know, Kitra could continue do, doing the editing full time. And uh, we launched that yesterday. I took off from slash home yesterday so that we could launch this, with this patreon and uh i'm gonna be honest with you guys like it it was very nerve-wracking it's like i don't know i'm also like (laughs) like the worst like the most critical person of himself and stuff like that it's like you know you plan a party and it's like will anybody show up to the party is anybody gonna like you know i bought all these drinks is 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 anybody gonna show up to my house (laughs) And uh, so, you know, when we launched this this Patreon yesterday, I, I really did. We really didn't know how many people were going to show up, and we're going to help support us and you know keep th- this adventure of ordinary adventures going. And uh, yesterday by midnight, we had five hundred backers on Patreon, and things we did not anticipate. Like we, our highest tier, which is the Jedi Knight tier, which is a fifty dollar tier. Uh, sold out completely like we had a cap on that because that that, with that tier you get a shout out and videos and we didn't want to be obnoxious and have too many shout outs and videos um so we didn't anticipate that it it, it, i don't know it was just crazy uh yesterday we spent the day 
our plan was to send video messages to everybody who backed like personal video messages, thanking everybody who backed us on Patreon. And we spent the day doing that, but we only got up to number 150 yesterday. So we're going to, I think that's what we're going to spend our weekend doing is recording video messages to all these, you know, 500 people that uh, backed us on Patreon. It's, it's, uh, I don't know. It, it was really humbling and we're getting lots of stories of from people and how, uh, you know, watching our videos, keeping them going. It, it, it's just really, it, it's meant a lot to both of us. And it's, it's really, really cool. Anyways. Uh, so, so this last week I've spent a lot of time working on that and getting that ready and launching that yesterday. That's been really a whole lot of my week. Uh, Chris, what have you been up to? Uh, yeah, I, um, this, I released this a little while ago, but I went on vacation, so I didn't have a chance to talk about it, but, uh, I put out another new bonus episode of 21st Century Spielberg, and this episode had a very special guest, and that special guest is HT, so please listen to it if you want more Chris slash HT talking action, because I think it came out really well. It was a very fun conversation we had about Tintin and, uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah. yeah. Who who wouldn't want more HT Chris banter? I know. Everyone wants that. The people demand it. <laughs> yeah, go check that out. Uh what what is going to be the next films that you're going to be doing? Uh next up is Warhorse and Lincoln and that'll be out probably next week. I have to I still have to write it. So that'll probably be out next week. Very cool. HT, what have you been up to? I decided to finally fulfill one of my quarantine goals and work out. <laughs> so I have been just perusing a lot of uh, workout videos on YouTube, like these ab challenges from young, hot um vloggers who you know are like oh it's so easy to get in shape and I'm like sure as I'm eating ramen while I'm watching these videos. So I decided to finally try one of these challenges this past weekend and I started Chloe Ting's two-week shred challenge because I've always wanted abs. I'm probably not going to get them because I'm still eating terribly. <laughs> I love white rice. I'm sorry. But um, it's um, I'm actually keeping up with it, which I'm surprised about myself because I'm terrible at uh, being consistent with one of these kinds of exercises. So, um, and it's, it's quite rough. I, I did, I, the first day I did it, I nearly threw up and I was like, well, I'm really out of shape. <laughs> so I, um, I've been doing it for about three days in a row now and I'm pretty proud of myself. So hopefully in two weeks time, I will say that I finished it and have some semblance of muscle in my ab area i don't know if i will but um that's just you know something that i'm you know doing i'm kind of proud of right now i've mentioned on the past I, we've been doing this ddp yoga which is like it kicks my ass but i don't think it's ever like brought me to the point that i almost threw up like how does that happen well to be fair i had eaten like two hours beforehand and I was like it's a great idea to go for exercise right now so I had like I had had breakfast which was a light breakfast and I was like oh yeah I can totally do it but it was a bad idea so so I guess the only question is HT once you get these abs what are you gonna do with them um probably <laughs> take a picture from my Instagram and then not exercise again and that'll be it Brad, you know something about having abs. Oh, that couldn't be further from the truth. I, I haven't seen my abs since I was six years old when I had a six pack. <laughs> I don't think, even think I had abs when I was six years old. Yeah. I don't think I ever had abs. No, no, probably 
Probably me, uh, me either. <laughs> um, but what have uh, you been up to? Uh, well, so one of the things I wanted to talk about that uh, because because I recently uh, griped about how difficult it is to get a hold of certain uh, collectibles and exclusive um, action figures, especially from NECA, uh, is a pre-order that is live uh, this week. Actually, only until tomorrow uh, through tomorrow. Uh, for a new two-pack um, of Toka and Razar from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. And I wanted to mention it because I already pre-ordered it. These were two figures that I was excited that they were making because uh, they never really made great versions of these characters when I was a kid. And these are super detailed and scaled to the movie figures that NECA already released, and they just look fantastic. And this is the first time for the Ninja Turtles line of figures that NECA has done pre-orders rather than making it extremely difficult to buy through their online store or Walmart or Target or whatever. And if this is if, if this gets a good enough reaction and they get plenty of pre-orders, then it's something that they'll start doing more often, uh, not just for future releases, but they might just bring back some other stuff that other people haven't been able to get a hold of. Um, including previous waves of like the animated series figures, some of the movie figures, and all that jazz. So there's supposed to be more news on that coming up soon, and I just I just wanted to put that out there because I was so excited to be able to easily get these figures. It was so so um, much less stressful. It was, and there was no glitches or anything. There was no difficulty in getting it. So um, if you want these figures and you're hoping to see the the uh, line get easier to obtain make sure you go to uh, the NECA store online and pre-order these figures. So so has NECA said that this is a reaction to everything that's happened thus yeah, far? Yeah, yeah. They've, they've, they've been pretty open about um, reacting to, like, fan complaints and things like that on their Twitter. And they've been ta- they, had, they had been talking about how that there was an upcoming release that um, everyone would easily be able to get a hold of. And then ever since they launched it, they're saying, if you know, if it's successful, and it has been so far, they've, they've said that they've been um, really surprised by just just how well people are responding. Um, that it will be something that they can do more often in the future. So, well, well that is cool. It is, and uh, I'm sure many people out there know that your favorite movie of all time is Ghostbusters, and you got to interview someone who is a big part of that original movie. Yeah, um, we got an opportunity passed along to us to interview Ray Parker Jr., uh, who is the singer songwriter behind the Ghostbusters theme song. Uh, he's got a documentary. Um, about his career and life coming out called who you gonna call and uh, we talked to him um, about that and a lot of ghostbuster stuff Uh, so there's i have an interview that'll be coming up that you can uh, read about that it was pretty fun discussion found out a couple uh, interesting tidbits that i hadn't heard about before Uh, and it was cool just to uh, talk to him and hear about you know there's um so there's stuff out there that people have always known about uh you know the creation of the the theme song uh, and whatnot. So I tried to dive into some uh, extra things that I hadn't really seen discussed anywhere before, including, if you want to seek this out, a very strange 1985 Academy Awards performance of the Ghostbusters theme song that is like this stage musical uh, performance where Ray Parker Jr. is on a forklift and the forklift levitates and he's singing the theme song <laughs> from the forklift and then all these like uh, ghost dancers come out around him and like there's fog machines and then these ghost three ghostbusters come out but they don't look like the movie ghostbusters they're wearing like these 1950s blue shiny space suits and have like ray guns and then 
Dom DeLuise comes out at the end. It's it's very weird. <laughs> you you posted this in our Slack channel, and I have never seen this before. Yeah, ever. I hadn't even heard of it. I I just stumbled upon it when I was looking up uh, old stuff like with him talking about the the theme song and everything. So it was it was something to uh, to behold for sure. <laughs> okay, crazy. So when is that going to be on the site? Uh, it'll be up next week. Next week. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Chris, what have you been reading this week? Uh, I read two books recently. Um, I think the last time I was on The Water Cooler, I talked about the the Bruce Lee Criterion box set. And uh, one of the features on that box set was uh, Matthew Poli, who's a, who's a writer. Uh, he wrote a book about Bruce Lee and all his inter- interviews he gave on that box set. I just found like really informative and interesting. So I was like, I want to read this guy's book. So I read it. It's called Bruce Lee, A Life. And it, it's a really great book it's a you know uh like i said last time i i didn't really know a whole lot about bruce lee and this book is pretty much everything you really need to know about his life and and what made him so important so if you're if you're curious to learn more about bruce lee uh, i really recommend this book um was that the book that you were showing us stuff about like the those movies where they would cut out his face and put it on other actors well, they talk about that there, but there's a, a different feature at about strictly that on the box set from Grady Hendrix, who's a different writer. Oh but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they I'm do talk kidding. about those uh, the, the Bruce Plantation films. It is mentioned in this book as well. And then the other book I read is uh, it's called "You Never Forget Your First by Alexis Coe, and it's uh, a biography about George Washington. And interestingly enough, although probably not, it probably won't surprise people just because that's the way the world goes, but. There hasn't been uh, a biography about George Washington written by uh, a female author in 40 years, at least 40 years. So Alexis Coe realized that and she was like, you know what, I'm going to write a book about George Washington. So um, I've read a few George Washington biographies. I read the one by uh, David McCullough and uh, that's good and that's very detailed. But a lot of George Washington biographies, they really focus on, you know, what a what a manly man he was. You know, this this general who did all these battles and all this stuff and this book um it, it takes it, it's a little breezier it's not as in-depth but it, it it was a very interesting read because it does a really good job of sort of balancing both you know what made george washington you know someone worth remembering and an important figure but it doesn't shy away from some of the terrible shit he did you know he, you know for all of george washington's good points he still did a lot of terrible stuff which you know, a lot of people these days, they argue like, oh, they didn't know any better back then. But that really, really isn't true. And so this this book doesn't shy away from his flaws. And I, I really appreciate that. And it's and like I said, it's a very breezy read. I, I finished this in like two days. So it's not like the most in-depth George Washington biography, but it's definitely one of the better ones I've read. So uh, I recommend that as well. OK, let's move into what we've been watching the let's first talk about this film host i've seen a lot of people talking about this on my twitter stream jacob what did you think uh host is a film that was conceived and produced during the covid19 pandemic it is shot entirely on zoom with the director directing actors you know from over the internet and visual effects completing it in post uh it is a horror film about a group of friends who gather on zoom as a lot of people do these days, uh, but they've hired a, a medium to run a seance over to Zoom with them, and some pe- members of the group do not take it seriously, and things go wrong, and an evil spirit starts tormenting all of them in their homes. Uh, I had a really good time with this movie. It is 56 minutes long. It wastes zero time. 
It has lots of great jump scares. It is spooky. The acting is good. I had a great time with it. And even though it is set during the COVID-19 pandemic and the characters are all self-isolating, they're wearing masks at certain points, uh, it's refreshing to see a new movie uh, shot like this that is not about COVID. It is set during that time period, but it's not using you know demons as a metaphor for coronavirus. It is uh, just a film that happens to be set during this time. And is a really, really... yeah. I was gonna say I don't think we're ready for that, Jacob. Yeah, but it, it is, it is a, uh, it is, it's pretty much you know a fun house roller coaster style found footage horror movie, a one that I think worked really well, uh, especially uh, under an hour. Like I felt like I got my my money's worth. It's it's on Shutter, uh, streaming there. Got my money's worth and more. Uh, but Chris, I know you're a little more critical of found footage than I am. What did you think? I really dug this. I'm a fan of uh, Rob Savage, the guy who directed it. He um he made a short film a little while ago called uh, Dawn of the Death, and it's about uh, a zombie plague that's triggered by sound. And so it, it focuses on several deaf characters who don't succumb to it because they're deaf. And I thought that was like a very clever and well done. And it's not, you know, I know that sort of sounds exploitation ish, but it's not like that at all because he used like real deaf actors and, and stuff like that. So I, I'm a fan of his work and this is really well done. Uh, host is really well done. It, it's clever. It, it finds ways to, use its its format and its medium uh effectively and uh i won't give anything away but I, this is a tease listeners that we here at slash film are planning something very cool related to hosts so keep your keep your eyes peeled for that sometime soon yeah that's gonna be cool uh speaking of short movies on netflix i watched this film over the weekend it's called the speed cubers this is a documentary it's kind of done in, I guess, like, you know, spellbound fashion where they're all it's all leading up to this championship. And it's a look inside the subculture of speed cubers, which I'm not sure if you know, but it's, you know, Rubik's cubes. Like there's these <laughs> kids, usually very younger, uh, that are able to solve a Rubik's cube in seconds, like really seconds. They are insane. Uh, there's. You know, the, the main guy that this follows, he, he has so many world records in solving the cube. Uh, th- this is actually, it's not really about a person. It's about this rivalry between these two kids and how their friendship kind of makes them better for this rivalry. The, the main one has, is autistic. Uh, this uh, Between the two, there, there's one award in speed cu- the speed cubing world that has been owned by these two just these two people over the last 10 year period and has gone back back and forth it's very heartfelt it's only 40 minutes long it's totally worth your time uh, i would highly recommend you check out the speed cubers on netflix if i have only one complaint it is that it's too short like you, you it like end and you're like wait it's over <laughs> so it, it goes by like that um and last week on water cooler Brad talked about this show called Love on the Spectrum, and this is a show on Netflix. It is a reality series that I think was originally produced in Australia, and it is about um, autistic people who have who are going out. They're set up on these dates with other autistic people. It, it, it um. I think this show had this uh, this fact. I'm not sure if this is true, but at one point it said 95% of people with autism never find the love of their life, which seems crazy to me. 95% like that that that, that fact is, uh, is sad. Uh you know, it's it's they're 
like their quirkiness. Like I don't know. There's so many characters in like I, I say characters, but they're real people. But the the characters in this story are so quirky and so you fall in love with every single one of them, and you you want every one of them to succeed, and you're 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 really pulling for them to find love and for these connections to work out. Uh, spoiler alert! At the end of the, sh- the series, they they go through how many of them worked out, and it's not very good. So there, but uh, but there's so much fun to be had here. It's not like a American reality ser- reality TV series. It feels almost documentary style. It feels like uh, I think more clinical, more like a British documentary or something like that. But it, it does have its fun. And there's a lot of fun to be had in like the awkwardness of those first dates, and it's you know times ten because of what autism brings. Uh, to you know that situation when, when brad was talking about it i was a little bit hesitant to like watch this and i like i was like maybe i'll feel bad because because like are you laughing at the disability or are you laughing at the situation and it is totally the situation the situation is you know times 10 of the awkwardness of a of a like a regular like the the dates that you have had in your life and how like just just how awkward that situation is because you know these people are are the way they communicate with each other like there is blocks there there are blocks and there's every single one of them has their own quirky like thing that they love and like they're into and their obsession and uh you know, one one guy is like obsessed with dinosaurs and he's taking his dates on uh, trips to like the museum to talk about dinosaurs and not like asking them any questions about themselves. And uh, I don't know. It, it, it's only four episodes long. It could have almost been a film in my mind. Like I, I like I know this is a reality sh- series and it, it feels at times it does feel like a reality series because the producers kind of become involved in the story and uh I'm sure all the dates are uh, like distracted and even the conversations amongst the families like leading up to these dates and stuff are kind of like probably put together by producers. But it, it, it feels even though it is a reality series, it feels a little bit more documentary than a normal reality series. And you really will fall in love with these characters and you'll really be rooting for all these these relationships to happen and some of them happening at comic cons and some of them have, I don't know. It's just so relatable and so, so good. I I hope uh, they, Brad, have you heard, are they making a second season of this? Yeah, they're already working on a second season in Australia. And also um, after you finish watching the the first season, anybody out there and you, Peter, I don't know if you saw this uh, Netflix posted like a, like an eight or nine minute, uh, follow up, uh, catching up with some of the people on the show and asking them where they're at now. Oh, I have not seen that. Is that on like YouTube or is it on Netflix? Yeah, it's itself? no, it's on uh, Netflix's YouTube channel. Oh, I'm gonna have to check that out. Uh, but uh, do, do you agree with what I've said? It, it feels a little bit more documentary style than a normal like dating reality yeah, series. Yeah, for sure. Like if like there obviously there have to be setups because you know they they need to be there to follow these dates and know when they're going to these um, you know like speed dating things and stuff like that. But it never feels manufactured. Every everything feels just so authentic and earnest, just because of these people who are just 
they they really just want to find somebody that they can be happy with, and it's uh, you know it's it has it takes away all the cynicism that there usually is in dating shows. Yeah, one hundred percent. I would highly recommend this to anybody listening. I think you will love this show. Um, another show that Brad talked about last week on the, on the water cooler was Muppets. Now this is the new version of the Muppets from Disney Plus. Um, he was kind of negative on this. I am a big Muppets fanatic. I was expecting to love this. Uh, F you, Brad, this is good. No, it isn't. It's not good. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. Uh, this, I really did not like the show that I don't know. I only saw the first episode. I, Brad, how many episodes did you see? There were four. It, there were four for our, the, the press preview. So I've, I've seen all but two episodes. Okay. I think only one is out online on Disney plus right now. Or probably when you're listening to this, and I guess there's probably two. Uh, I only watched the first one, which I guess the first one was originally meant to not be an episode. It was going to be like a bunch of shorts that they were going to release online. And it's kind of strung together as like Skeeter's like putting putting together like this show and uploading it to the network or something. I don't know. It's just very convoluted. Spoiler alert. That... They're all like that. <laughs> oh, are they all like that? They're, they're literally the, the premise, no matter what, for every episode is that Scooter is running behind and getting the show uploaded and he's doing it at the last minute and so it, the the bookends and the stuff with like the computer screen it's every episode is was that a result of covid or is that was no that always no this, in- this is something that they planned like it, it it's weird because it feels like a show that was created to like for this age where everyone is on zoom and stuff like that but this was how the show was planned yeah this show feels so low budget and it feels I don't know. In theory, when you were des- describing the show, Brad, I was excited because in like the concept sounds like like a good concept of all the like the Muppets doing like web videos on YouTube and having their own shows. And it would like having celebrity guests on those that would add to like the humor. But it really feels like this show was created. I don't know. The approach of the show and the people writing it don't feel like they are of the generation that they're trying to appeal to. It feels almost like the executives at Quibi being like, oh yeah, we'll make this start streaming service for people on their phones and we'll put it in vertical mode. Like it, it, it feels almost cynically created in that way. Like it's almost like they don't know, like they don't watch beauty vloggers. Like why, like they don't know what is going on. And it doesn't seem like there's enough, um, like on the cuff, like, like improvisational, like the best parts of this, I think are like, there's a segment with RuPaul and it really feels like they were like, it wasn't as scripted. And I, <laughs> yeah, that was, I, that's one of the segments that I also really enjoyed. And I wish that there was more stuff like that because they, even then some of the other ones, like there's one that they do, that's that same segment with, um, they do with Aubrey Plaza, but that one feels way more scripted than it does like in like a candid conversation. Hmm. And the other thing I really, really hate is I don't like the new Kermit. I'm not sure if you know this, but after Jim Henson died, they uh, the guy that replaced Jim Henson in the role of Kermit was, as the the Muppeteer and the voice was Steve Whitmore, Whitmire, sorry, Steve Whitmire, and he uh, I don't know. They're, they're, you can read online. Uh, apparently, a lot of people did not like him. The Muppet Company didn't like him, uh, or the Henson Company. Uh, Disney he clashed with some people. Uh, he got replaced as Kermit a couple years back by a guy named Matt Vogel, who uh, has done some other Muppet characters and stuff like that. And Matt Vogel, I'm sure he's a great performer. Like I, I, I like him in his other roles, but 
he doesn't sound anything like Kermit. Like, yeah, he, I agree like, wholeheartedly. It, it's really distracting. It's, uh, I don't know. Like, it's just like you see so many YouTube videos. I know so many people in my life that can do like a dead on Kermit impression. And I know that's not the big part here. The big part is like being able to, you know, perform as the Muppet and, you know, be in the moment and do the improv and stuff like that. But I feel like there must be someone out there that has a better voice or they can ADR a better voice. I don't know. It's just really distracting. I don't know how anybody could watch this and not be like, like I mentioned this on Twitter and a bunch of people like went to Disney plus to watch this thinking I, I, I had, I had to be wrong. And they were like, this sounds like it really doesn't sound. It sounds like a knockoff. It doesn't sound like something Disney made. It's really weird. Anyways. Uh, I'm not sure I'd recommend Muppets now. Should, should, should I keep on watching Brad? I, I feel like if you didn't like the first episode, you're not really going to find much more to like in the episodes that follow. Like, like, like I said before, my favorite stuff is the, the stuff with Swedish chef. And there are like some moments here and there that make me laugh, but it's really, I think the biggest miss for me with the series is that the, the the format, as interesting as it could have been, does not really allow for a lot of interaction between the Muppets. Um, like, if you continue watching, you'll see that Kermit and Piggy barely spend any screen time together. And that's just wrong and weird. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It, it feels low budget in that way, that, like, everything seems, it, it really does feel like it was something that was shot during COVID. Like it, I don't know. It's so weird. Yeah. Anyways. So, uh, the, the last thing I wanted to talk about today is Transformers War for Cybertron, the uh, trilogy, I guess it's called Transformers War, War for Cybertron trilogy. It's on Netflix. Uh, this is a show. I think this series is the first of the trilogy that, that is what, tri- like, that is why it's called the trilogy. And uh, this is executive produced, show run by uh, one of my friends, FJ. So there's that disclaimer that I know the guy that basically has been working on this for the last few years. Uh, he's put his put sweat and tears in here. Uh, that said, on Rotten Tomatoes, this is a Transformers thing. This is an anime. It's, it's anime. It's an anime Transformers. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it's getting 100% fresh. Uh, so it, like people are really loving this. It um it's an American anime, so it's by the like same guys that I think did like that Godzilla thing for Netflix. Um, this is not for kids. It has swearing. It's much much more complex. This is a war, an- anime. It's um, I-, I would say like it's almost like if Chris Nolan made an animated Transformers prequel TV series. It it's a dire war story about classing clashing ideologies on Cybertron and like what is leading to the, this, you know, the continuation of this war and what caused it. And it's dealing with all these like issues. It probably lacks the action that I'm guessing fans will probably want out of a transformers thing, but it's, it's also probably very great that like, it's like, how did this happen? How did this show that like this transformers anime show happen where it's like, dealing with complex uh issues of I, I guess we're exploring humanity through robots and stuff like that but uh i don't know i only watched the first episode i really enjoyed it uh it uh it looks really good it's on netflix now i think the first season of transformers war for cybertron trilogy 
Um, but I think less people will like this. If you if this sounds like something you'd be into, if you're like into Transformers, if you're into American animes, if you're into, uh, you know, war animes, uh, you, you might dig this. Uh, but yeah, that's that's on Netflix. Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched Lovecraft Country. Uh, I, I got the first five episodes of that um, uh, from HBO. And man, is this good. Uh, there's there were, oh, the for five episodes I watched, there's only one I didn't like, but everything else is uh, fantastic. Um, you know, I, I, you know, like I said, I don't have the whole series, so I hope it doesn't <laughs> drop off in quality after the last episode I watched. But um, everything I've seen so far is 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 just dynamite it's it's uh it's funny and it's weird and it's scary and it deals with uh really important issues uh while also having you know supernatural monsters in it it's also uh ridiculously gory i i you know i knew it was going to be violent because i read the book but i was not expecting in like the gore to be as pronounced as it is on this show here so uh, I think people are really going to enjoy this because it, it, it's it's really well made and it, it has a lot of important things to say. So uh, check this out for sure. This premieres on um, uh, August 16th on HBO. Wait, wait, wait. For people who don't know, what is the premise? So uh, the it's set in um, uh, Jim Crow America in the 1950s, um, and it primarily focuses on, on black characters, pretty much only focuses on black characters, but uh, it has them dealing with uh, Lovecraftian horrors. And it's a really interesting mashup because, you know, H.P. Lovecraft, for as influential as he's been on horror as a genre uh, you know pretty much every horror writer cites him as an influence Stephen King and, and so on and so forth uh, you know as important as his work is H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was also uh, extremely racist even for the era he lived in he was very, he was very very racist so this show sort of like grapples with that legacy and that you know, it uses the, the Lovecraft horror elements and, and blends them with the horrors of racism. And it's, it's not done in like a heavy handed way. It's really uh, an interesting balance the way they sort of work that out. So it, it's just a very uh, interesting show. Um, the cast is great. Uh, so if you're like, a, if you're a fan of the horror genre, you're really going to dig this. I'll, I'll put it that way. When does this hit HBO? August 16th. So next week. Uh, cool. Also on HBO, I watched An American Pickle, a.k.a. the movie where Seth Rogen becomes a pickle. Uh, when this when this the news of this first broke, I kind of like lost my mind at the at the mini synopsis that was released because it just sounded just so uh, ridiculous and stupid. And uh, but I was still curious to watch it. And it's it's enjoyable. It's not 100 percent successful. There's it kind of like runs out of steam. You can tell like they don't have a lot worked out beyond the initial premise, but uh, Seth Rogen, he plays two parts here. He plays a guy who falls into a pickle vat in the, in the 1920s. And then he wakes up in, in modern day times and he meets his, his great grandson who's also played by Seth Rogen. And the two performances he gives are really good. I, I, I think this is probably like the best performance slash performances he's he's ever given and uh, that's really the heart of the film like the relationship between these two very different people who are played by the same person um 
so yeah, it, it's it's a fun light watch. Like you you can, you'll watch it, you'll laugh at a few of the jokes. Some of the jokes are very very funny, and then you'll you'll probably forget about it once it's over. But it's definitely worth watching at least once. And that's out this week. I don't even know when that's out. I think so. <laughs> hey, look, I'm gonna type while I'm, I'm on the show. This is really professional. Uh, <laughs> it says, uh, yeah, it's this week. You you can watch it on HBO this week. Um, what else? Uh, I also watched uh, She Dies Tomorrow, which is um, the new film from Amy Simons, who's a, a an actress and a filmmaker. She was recently in um, the Pet Cemetery remake. Uh, and this is great. This movie is so just weird and haunting and upsetting. And uh, a lot of people are kind of like comparing it to just the situation we're in now, even though it wasn't made with that intention. Um, it's about uh, this woman who just one day suddenly becomes convinced she's going to die uh, the following day. And she starts telling, you know, her friends this. And at first her friends are like, Oh, you're being crazy. And then one by one, almost like a virus, her friends also start becoming convinced they too are going to die in, in 24 hours. And the whole movie is just, the whole movie is just about them grappling with this, this existential dread that, you know, when the sun comes up the next day, they're just going to die and there's nothing they can do about it. And it's just so trippy and strange. And, you know, I know the term like Lynchian and referred to David Lynch gets thrown around a lot when something is just when people really just mean, oh, that's weird. But this really feels genuinely Lynchian. Like it reminded me a lot of uh, Lost Highway. So uh, I, I really recommend this. This will be on VOD, I think, this weekend. So I, I really highly recommend checking this out. Uh, although, again, it's. It's a very strange film, so it might not be uh, to everyone's taste. And uh, finally, uh, so I've been rewatching Hamilton a lot on Disney because I, I have a sickness and I just feel the need to rewatch it a lot. And so rewatching it a lot has made me want to revisit the the John Adams miniseries that HBO released a while ago. So I finally got around to rewatching that while on vacation. And uh, that's probably like the the only good thing Tom Hooper has ever done. Tom Hooper, a.k.a. the director of Cats, directed that, which I always forget about. But uh, <laughs> yes, he directed the John Adams miniseries. And uh, it's just so good. And it does such a great job of, of making, you know, these historical figures seem like real flesh and blood individuals. And uh, it's just it's just such a well done miniseries. And I really enjoy it. And yeah. That's it. That's all I got, folks. John Adams. Wait, wait. So, did you watching Hamilton? Your your whole setup here. So, you watched Hamilton. So, you wanted to revisit this. Did that like reflect any in your revisit? I mean, it's it's an interesting counterbalance because Hamilton does show up in the John Adams miniseries. He's played by Rufus Sewell, and in the miniseries, he's portrayed as like just this this complete asshole who everyone hates, and it's it's a very interesting contrast how. You know, John Adams actually doesn't even show up at all in Hamilton. They just mention him. And, you know, obviously in Hamilton, Hamilton is the hero, whereas in the John Adams miniseries, he's he's kind of the villain. So it, it's an interesting contrast watching them back to back. It's also interesting because you can you can really if you're familiar with the real story of, of this stuff. Uh, you know, I read the John Adams book. I read the Hamilton book. Um, uh, you can actually see the stuff that Lin-Manuel Miranda pretty much just picked up 
from this mini series that actually didn't really happen. Like you, he said in the past that this mini series influenced some of the his storytelling decisions in Hamilton, and you can sort of see here and there like the stuff that was completely made up to be dramatic for the John Adams miniseries ended up sort of working its way into Hamilton as well, you know, sometimes directly, sometimes sort of uh, discreetly. So I thought that was, it's, it's kind of interesting to watch them back to back like that. If, if you're familiar with the, the history, what is the better Seth Rogen performance? Is it American pickle or is it Steve jobs? Man, I think his performance in Steve Jobs is better. That he's really good in that. So maybe that is his best performance. But this is like his second best, or second and third best as his two performances. So, but they're they're pretty much on equal footing. Seth Rogen is a good dramatic actor. I know I know he doesn't do drama that often, yeah. but uh, when he takes dramatic roles, he really can knock it out of the park. And I'm surprised he hasn't done more of that but maybe he's just not that interested in it i don't know but he's really good when he he has to be dramatic okay and jacob what have you been watching not much this week i rented uh dave franco's directorial debut the rental i believe chris uh spoke about this a few weeks ago he also reviewed it for the site it's good it is a totally solid uh little horror movie in fact it's kind of beneficial to go in maybe not knowing much just knowing that it's about four people who uh, rent an Airbnb and have a bad time. <laughs> I think that uh, Franco shows a real knack for uh, slow building suspense and things come crashing down in a way that I enjoyed. And I, and I ultimately uh, was very much on board with the very dark ending. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Uh, that's the rental. I'm able to rent uh, all your usual sources. I rented it on Amazon. Uh, I revisited Splice, the 2009 film from Vincenzo Natale. Uh, this was at the time a, kind of touted because Guillermo del Toro was producing it and had a uh, very interesting uh, CGI slash practical creature at the, at the forefront of it. And of course, Natalie's best known for directing Cube. Uh, and this was, he directed things between this, but I feel like this like was like his, really his big return to like making horror sci-fi after making Cube. And at the time, seeing some theaters, you know, over 10 years ago, I, I enjoyed this. Revisiting on Netflix, not so much. It feels dated and a lot of, uh, in a lot of really silly ways. Like, for example, there is, uh, it's edited with this sort of, sort of really hip energy that felt hip maybe 10 years ago, but doesn't really work now. Is a picture of Sarah Pauly and Adrian Brody as like these rock star scientists. It's legitimately embarrassing. Like, they're meant to be like celebrity scientists who appear on the cover of Wired, but their wardrobes and attitudes are just impossibly lame, like a, uh, a middle aged dad's idea of what a cool scientist would be. Uh, the plot of it involves him creating a uh, animal human uh, creature in their lab and raising it as a child and some messed up things happen. And there is some cool monster stuff that happens, especially in the back half. Some one scene in particular, I remember seeing the theaters and seeing a wave of walkouts <laughs> as it was happening. Uh, but I wish this had aged better. I wish I still liked it. Uh, Chris, I feel like you have an opinion on splice in 2020. Uh, yeah, I saw this when it came out in theater. I haven't watched it since. Um, I thought it was okay. In theaters, I remember it was getting like a lot of hype from from horror circles when it came out. So I was like, oh, I got to check that out. And uh, I, I remember liking some of it. And then some of it, I was just like, wow, this sucks. So I'm, I'm, I was somewhere in the middle of it. And I, I've never really felt the urge to revisit it. So I guess that's my stance on it. Yeah, that's Splice on Netflix. Uh, maybe worth it to watch it for the creatures and some uh, weird nastiness. But 
It's just like Diet Coke Cronenberg, honestly. Um, last thing I watched is worth talking about. Uh, Into the Unknown. Uh, this is the documentary series on Disney Plus about the making of Frozen 2. If you don't like Frozen 2, I like Frozen 2 quite a bit. Uh, this is a wonderful series. It is six episodes long, and it is just... Oh, my, my cat just leapt across my <laughs> desk. I'm not sure how audible that was. Uh, but it, uh, Into the Unknown, a six-episode series uh, following the making of the Frozen 2 and its final year of production. And uh, wow. Wow, 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 wow. I love this. It is a wonderful insight into how an anime studio operates, into how animators work. It tries to shine a light in the various corners of, you know, what a layout artist does versus what an animator does versus what an effects artist does. Uh, but most importantly, as has been discussed before on this podcast, it lets the cameras in to the very tense moments where people are trying to figure out how to fix a movie that isn't quite working. And those scenes are incredible. And seeing how close they come to cutting certain songs and seeing how they drastically rework scenes. And you see on camera um, uh, one actor learning that his song's been cut and he's reacting on camera to, oh, I guess my songs Disney musical is gone now what do I do and it's really heartbreaking and into the unknown is uh I loved it I devoured this in about yeah. two sittings uh I, and, I, and that's a huge actor too not yeah. like yeah uh I highly recommend that that series yeah it, it, I, I did not terrific. I did not like frozen I think this is like a masterwork of showing you how the Walt Disney animation process works and it's also our first kind of glimpse into the person that's running the studio after John Laster kind of left. So we get to kind of get uh, some insight into her and uh, who she is. Yeah, it's Jennifer so. Lee, the co-director and uh, writer of, of Frozen 1 and, and 2. And yeah, I, she seems lovely. I, I, I like the movie finds a, a, a strand of narrative about her being a single mom who's trying to direct Frozen 2 while <laughs> running Disney animation, while taking care of her daughter. And that, what an amazing woman. Like, all, all hats off to her. Yeah, for sure. HT, what have you been watching this week? I've been watching Ip Man 4, which is the last film in the Ip Man franchise starring Donnie Yen. And um, it's hit, recently hit Netflix, so I decided to check, it, to check it out. And it's very much an Ip Man movie. It kind of goes through the beats of his life while he is forced to uh, struggle with taking with, um, abiding by duty to his family versus uh, beating Western imperialism in a show of, of brawn and bravery that proves the the superiority of Chinese fighting style. So it very much is in that same vein. And um, this one takes Ip Man to San Diego after his pupil, Bruce Lee, um, uh, asks him to come there to see him fight in a martial arts competition. And Ip Man gets uh, embroiled in a conflict between the U.S. Navy and... Um, the Chinatown martial arts families uh, as and Scott Atkins plays this very over the top, very um, um, just scenery chewing uh, admiral, I think. And uh, he's, you know, he's not great in this. He's just, you know, chewing the scenery in the way that a lot of the Western actors who are cast in Ip Man or in Chinese martial arts movies are want to do. And it, it's, yeah, it's fine. Donnie Yen does great work as usual and is even more stoic in this film if possible. And uh, the fight sequences are great, but I'll, while watching it, I just kind of, I just kept thinking about how great um, Master Z Ip Man Legacy is. 
And I kept thinking about that movie. I'm like, wow, I really want to rewatch Ip Man. Uh, well, Master Z, uh, Ip Man Legacy. But Ip Man 4 is good. And, um, you know, good send off to um, Donnie Yen's portrayal of the character for the past 10 years. Um, things, I can't remember anything. I mean, I think the, um, the actor who played Bruce Lee is actually quite good. I was a little bit surprised um, with, you know, Bruce Lee. Uh, characters playing such famous uh, actors playing such famous characters it can often lead to the performance feeling very costume but um the actor playing him who i am looking up now because i did not look up the actor's name uh was um impressed me a little bit he he felt very much like he kind of um captured the swagger of bruce lee danny chen kwok Quan. He's quite good. Um, so yes, you, you're um, saying that they didn't print out a picture of Bruce Lee and just like and put it on his head, on his face. Unfortunately, they did not. But yeah, it was. Uh, he, he's good in it, even though he he appears for like 15 minutes at the beginning of the film, and you think he's going to be a major player, and then he just disappears for the rest of the film. And you're like, oh, I guess there's that. And he has like one big fight scene. You're like, oh, I guess that's the Bruce Lee fight scene they're going to put in the trailers, and then get everyone to watch and. Uh, and he doesn't appear in the movie. But yeah, there's like a karate kid type of subplot as well, which is, you know, it's all it's all hack. But uh, I, I feel like I'm being mean about Ip Man movies, but I feel like it's just because I love Master Z so much. And Ip Man has just felt so stale compared to that movie. So Ip Man 4, worth a watch if you like the Ip Man movies and um, you want to see Donnie Yen take on the role for one last time. I, I have not seen any of the Ip Man movies. For whatever reason, I feel like I I missed the bus on this, and it's like too late. So but it's this like one's actually good, and it actually you know it's all they're all Rocky Four essentially, where <laughs> where Don Yen beats uh, the Westerner slash imperialist with his fists. But and it, it's not. That's why I like Itman One the best is that it's not content to be Rocky Four repeated over and over again. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, that's why Iman one is the is the best one because there's a little bit more complexity to it. But the the the, and that, the next few ones kind of just repeat that formula. So, but Iman one is is the best one, and if you just like to see Donnie Yen fight, the fight scenes are quite good in the rest of the movies. Okay, what else have you been watching, HT? I watched The Secret Garden, the new adaptation directed by Mark Munden and written by Jack Thorne. And this was a movie that I was a little bit skeptical about. I remember watching the trailer and there's this very fantasy heavy approach, which I found to, which I felt like was making this classic um, written by Frances Hodgson Burnett um, out to be sort of like this next Harry Potter style film. And the fact that Jack Thorne has written the stage play for the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child made it definitely feel like that was the case. But I was pleasantly surprised watching this movie. Um, Rather than a fantasy heavy approach, it's actually something more akin to magical realism in which the magic, so to speak, is in the eye of the beholder, which is actually quite... um, loyal to the portrayal of of that magic in uh, the original book. I read the original Secret Garden when I was um, young, and I absolutely loved it. It's one of like my childhood books. I haven't read it in a while, but um, it's. I always thought of it as kind of a beginner's gothic type of book because, you know, it has a willful protagonist who uh, is who arrives at this cavernous dilapidated manor in the moors mysterious residents who don't talk to her and are haunted by the ghosts of their past um not literal in this case but uh she does find like a sickly cousin who's hidden away but it's always kind of 
felt like that for me. And I, I actually like that this movie, in addition to the magical realism approach, leans into the gothic part, the gothic element of that um, of the story. It's it feels very haunting and gothic, and um, even has like a jump scare or two, which I was a little bit surprised about. But um, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by this movie. I enjoyed it a lot. I think the um, the child actors um, were impressive too. The Colin Firth was. Um, plays the dad and he and he and uh um ooh, julie walters i think um uh they were not as impressive um i feel like they were kind of you know going through the motions a little bit um but i was impressed by the child actors dixie eager ricks is the um the newcomer who plays Mary Lennox, the main character. And there are like quite a few changes that this movie made. They made it, they set it in 1947 versus the 20th, the century 1911 setting of the original story. Um, But I think it works for the movie and um, for the story that they're trying to tell. My one big um, pet peeve with this, and it's kind of a, a pet peeve with a lot of family movies these days is that it tries to raise the stakes too much. And I really dislike this ongoing trend. And I've seen it in movies like Winnie the Pooh and Mary Poppins Returns, where they always have to have this big third act um, climax that raises the stakes. And there's always a ticking clock of some kind. And I don't mind a ticking clock, but I feel like there's nothing wrong with a low stakes ending, low stakes you know, resolution. And yeah. Secret Garden is like the most low stakes you can really be. Um, and I just I just really dislike that they always have to add stakes and, you know, they're like, oh, and now everything's on fire. Um, so it's just, uh, that annoyed me quite a bit. So, um, but other than that, I, I really enjoyed The Secret Garden and that's coming to VOD tomorrow. And you watched a new documentary on Disney Plus. I did. I watched a new documentary called Howard. It's about the life of lyricist Howard Ashman, who in his um, professional partnership with Alan Menken created the songs behind in um, Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and was um, and uh, was basically one of the kind of people who helped raise Disney into the Disney renaissance um, of Disney animation that we see in the 90s. And he tragically died um, early uh, from AIDS. And uh, this movie directed by Don Hahn goes into his life and um, his contributions to that Disney legacy. And um, it's, it is direct is made in a way that is um, feels very much like an in memoriam type of, tribute to him because most of the film is um, apart from some archival footage of the making of the songs behind Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid is um, just photos of Howard Ashman and um, interviews with with his families and friends and colleagues. Um, But the interviews are all done in voiceover and none of the talking heads are seen, uh, which is a good way of making it all about Howard Ashman and all about just like his life and his experiences. But in a sense, it kind of made it feel a little bit impersonal just because you're just hearing voices for a good hour. Um, but it, it works to just kind of make it solely about him and about, and like about appreciating his life. And um, I, um, it's a really beautiful um, moving documentary that is, feels like it's made out of love because it's made by people who uh, sincerely um, cared about him and um, more than just like his contributions to Disney. And I, but I did really enjoy the archival footage that you see of him working with the orchestra and with the singers in Beauty and the Beast, uh, which the movie opens with. It shows them um, doing Be Our Guest, 
with Angela Lansbury and uh, um, other singers. And it's um, it's really some. So it's just a really cool behind the scenes sneak uh, peek at it, just like to see him at work as well as just to see how it all came together and that kind of energy that before they knew it was going to be a really big thing, but everyone knows it's going to be something special, kind of that kind of energy. And I, I really like seeing that. And um, so, yeah, it's it's a great documentary and it's streaming on Disney Plus uh, starting tomorrow, August 7th. I was a big fan of uh, Don Hahn's previous documentary, Waking Sleeping Beauty. So I'm excited. Uh, to, yeah, Waking Sleeping Beauty is like one of my favorite documentaries. So yeah, this is fantastic. And an- another one that follows up in that. Um, <laughs> it's a great thematic follow up. Yeah. Okay. So from one Howard to another Howard, from Howard Ashman to Howard Hamlin, tell us about your Better Call Saul watch yeah so i talked a few weeks ago maybe a couple months ago about watching finally getting on the better call saul train and i've been taking it kind of slow i only just finished season three of better call saul yeah this show's great guys and it's so good it's just um i really feel like um this show even more so than breaking bad um is able to uh capture what Vince Gilligan is trying to do with that tragic character arc of a character who starts with good intentions maybe or starts from a somewhat positive place and that decline um, into criminality in a way that doesn't feel like that semi-glorification that Breaking Bad had and that it's not just the fault of the fans. I feel like some of the part is, is in the show itself. Because like Breaking Bad, I love Breaking Bad. I think it's a near-perfect show. But I do think that so much of the show um, hinges on you, you know, rooting for Walter White and rooting for the bad guys to win. And the way the show works is that it it, it makes these these scenes of, like, action and, and gangs and everything seem very cool and seem very glamorous. And I feel like Better Call Saul toes that line in um, – showing the real tragedy behind um, these more, uh, these darker sort of um, elements of this character arc. And I think that it really is embodied in Kim Wexler. So I remember when I first talked to, when I first started talking about Be- uh, Better Call Saul and I was like, oh yeah, Kim Wexler, I know everyone loves her, but her voice sounds like she's, um, <laughs> that, <laughs> she has a frog in her voice, but no. Uh, Rhea Seorn is great in the role. And I do think that, with Kim Wexler, who is such a principled character, um, he is able to give you a character to root for that embodies the moral um, quandaries of this series. And it's almost a little bit frightening to see her um, like flirt with that darker side of um, that uh, Jimmy McGill is fully enveloped in and um you want to see her come out of it kind of at it okay and that's really interesting to see like oh you know something terrible is going to happen to her down the line and you know that at some point she's going to like have to sacrifice those principles and you see it like happening a little bit at a time and i think that with kim wexler um vince gilligan Gilligan has been able to um uh, evolve what he was trying to do with breaking bad and kind of that sort of tragic character arc so does that make sense? Is that, is like yeah. A, yeah. I'm sure like everyone has already come to this conclusion a long time ago. They're like, yeah, we all know high chance, fine, whatever. But yeah, I really appreciate it. And I just want to say, I had a really funny comment to my friend that I thought was uh, 
uh, I'm just going to tell it to the podcast because I think it's, everyone should hear it. But I know okay. now, I know why this um, show hits such a sweet spot for film Twitter specifically. It's got steely blondes smoking in low light and sad, morally ambiguous men for the girls. So steely blondes smoking in low light for the guys, <laughs> sad, morally ambiguous old men for the girls. That's why. That's why Better Call Saul is that sweet spot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited for you, HD, because I feel like the first three seasons of Better Call Saul are great. They're great television, but there's something that happens at the end of season three that kind of propels it into what it becomes, which is amazing. And I think uh, I- I'm just so excited for you to discover where it goes because it-, it-, it like not that it wasn't good in the first three seasons, but I feel like it like steps itself up. Am I right about that, Chris? Like does better call Saul after like season three, I think it's like around season, what happens at the end of season. Three. I would say it just keeps getting better. That's how I would phrase it. Cause I loved it from the beginning, but it yeah. starts getting even better and more tense. And uh, yeah, it's <laughs> what season are you on HT? Where are you I at? just finished season three. So I'm about to start okay. season four. And uh, season four is the last one that's available on Netflix, but I think season five is available on the AMC website. Yeah, it's it's so good. It's a good show. Yeah. <laughs> Hot take. Hot take. Good show. <laughs> I, I feel like it's the best show on television, but like not everybody's watching it. I really like, I don't know. I know a lot of people watch it, but like you don't get the like Breaking Bad like buzz about I, yeah, I, do, I don't get, like I was on vacation last week but I, I saw when the the Emmys went up and the fact that Ray Seahorn did not get nominated drove me like insane because I, I really think she gives like the best performance on TV right now and the fact that the Emmys just keep yeah. being like yeah who cares it's, it's like what are you doing just give, give her the nomination Ugh, all right I'm done and this past season in particular she's been she's, I don't know just incredible anyways okay uh Brad what have you been watching? Um, nothing much new, but I just I decided to jump into some comfort comedies for me. Um, Wedding Crashers uh, recently returned um, to HBO, so it's on HBO Max. Uh, this is a comedy that uh, I just love. It's so good, and I feel like um, you know, it, more and more recently, I've noticed that just just R rated comedies just keep getting pushed to the side, and they're you know, even the good ones aren't praised as much. They don't generate enough buzz. And obviously studios have veered away from them because they're not raking in tons of money like big blockbusters and PG-13 comedies and stuff that you can take your grandma to and have a good chuckle. Um, and I just, Vince, Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson are so good in this movie. It makes me kind of, uh, you know, miss Vince Vaughn doing comedies. Like where, like he, he's been doing serious stuff recently. Like he's just so good as the, you know, the fast, fast talking, you know, jerky kind of character who still has, some endearing qualities and uh rachel mcadams and isla fisher are both great in this movie too and i just it's it's one of those you know great r-rated romantic comedies that is funny and charming and i just wish there were more of them uh and speaking of which i also rewatched forgetting sarah marshall which is on the exact same plane of being great um but for you know for for the same reasons but also for different reasons because uh jason siegel you know is a big part of what this is great bill Hader is awesome in it Kristen Bell, Russell Brand, um, Mila Kunis, everyone's outstanding in this movie. And what's great about it too is like, it's all of the characters, you know, have, have some kind of, you know, uh, good arc in it. And it's not this prototypical romantic comedy. It's very funny, but it also has a lot of heart to it. And just the way the characters, 
uh, evolve and like the, the dynamic between them. Um, it's just, it's one of those, yeah, another great R rated romantic comedy. So if you haven't somehow seen either of those movies, Forgetting Sarah Marshall is on Hulu, Wedding Crashers on HBO Max, and uh, I, I just love them both. Very cool. I'm, I'm a big fan of both of those. Uh, ben, what have you been watching? Oh, a few things. Uh, Brad, I just have to say the, the, uh, Will Ferrell cameo at the end of Wedding Crashers when he's standing there at that funeral and just like loudly cursing at the dead body, just being like, damn you, Roger, that's damn so it, good. damn you. I, I think about that. My wife and I do that all the time. Like in, That's in, one in, of the, the in, lines that we still quote. In addition to that, I I, I also will just randomly like doing the, the thing when he looks and he like gives the knowing and he's like, eh, eh, eh. oh yeah, the arm thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I could see you doing it when you were making an uh sound. So I, that's how uh, important that moment is to cinema. So, um, okay, so the stuff I've been watching. I watched uh, Black is King, which is a new Beyonce movie that is on uh, Disney Plus right now. This is essentially a visual album. It's it's um, So when The Lion King came out, Beyonce, uh, Beyonce voiced the character of Nala in Jon Favreau's Lion King. Uh, when that movie came out, there was a an album that came out uh, sort of simultaneously to that, a, a companion album called The Gift. And uh, Beyonce did the music for that. And this uh, movie, Black is King, is like a visual version of that album, basically. And it's sort of like a retelling of The Lion King in a more impressionistic form. Um, there are characters in it, but there's almost no dialogue at all. I'll, I'll, 98% of it takes place uh, in song. And it's it's a lot of... Eh. My wife and I were sort of having the conversation of like, is this actually a movie? Like, could this be nominated for Academy Awards? Because it is gorgeous. Like, that's the, the big takeaway is, um, holy shit, this thing looks incredible. Like, Hannah Beachler, who won an Oscar for the uh, production design for Black Panther, does the production design here. And it's unreal. I'm not sure who did the costumes on this, but... Um, man like just it, it's like every you know two minutes you were or less than that even you were just bombarded with like incredible looks from all of the background dancers and Beyonce herself she changes outfits so many times in this thing and it is really just like a um like a steamroller of an experience and the cinematography is is uh, like unreal it's just it's one of the most beautiful uh, pieces of media that I've seen this year. So I would recommend it for that reason alone. Um, I'm still sort of wrapping my head around, you know, what I think about it, you know, if it, if it is a movie and all of that, we're sort of having that conversation of like, you know, if Hamilton is considered a movie, what is this considered? It's sort of in that weird, um, that, that weird zone in between where it's like, it's it's a, a series of music videos strung together, but it has an overarching narrative and, I don't know. I'm interested to hear what you guys think of it if you end up watching it and, um, you know, sort of how you would characterize it or, or categorize it. Um, but uh, Bliss the Ambassador, who directed this movie that we talked about on the podcast previously called uh, The Burial of, of Kojo that is on Netflix right now, is one of the people who were sort of like called in uh, to serve as like a um, uh, like a sub director of this movie. Like Beyonce sort of like put her feelers out and got several um, you know, this, this diverse uh, cast and crew and, and people to um, participate in sort of bringing this whole thing together under her like singular artistic vision. And um, man, it's just uh, a really like powerful piece of work. So uh, that is Black is King. It is on Disney Plus right now. And um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I haven't really seen anybody say anything bad about it. I guess to, uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering if I should even say this out loud because I don't have enough of a, a fully formed opinion on it, but I, I am interested if, if you guys watch it, if you think of, if you, if you think that there might be any sort of issues with um, cultural appropriation in it, even from Beyonce, because there's a lot of like <laughs> uh, what I thought of or, or, or perceived to be uh, primarily Indian styles and dances and things like that, that Beyonce does in this. And I don't know if, if those uh, dances and, and sort of like cultural touchstones uh, have a shared history with African uh, cultures because this whole movie takes place it is like very African. It takes place on that continent and is is like uh, infused with um, the cultures and societies and and stylings of many different African nations. Um, but the there was some Indian stuff or, or stuff that I I thought reminded me more of India than Africa on here, and I was like, huh, I wonder what people who are smarter than me think about this because I don't have, I don't have the, I'm not equipped enough, I think to, uh, to like fully analyze that, but it, it was something that sort of like, uh, uh, I don't know, just drew my attention for a second. So um, something to think about if you guys end up watching it, maybe watch it through that particular lens. So, uh, okay. So that's black is King. That is on Disney plus right now. I also finished uh, I'll be gone in the dark, which is the, I think six episode series that was on uh, HBO. It just wrapped up its run. Um, Chris talked about this when it first came out, but this is uh, based on um, Michelle McNamara's book and it's about the Golden State Killer. And uh, the show is, it's about her writing the book. Um, it's also about the Golden State Killer. It's, it's. Um, I think Chris, you know, actually Chris was quoted in the the marketing for the show calling it a game changer because I think it, it, it uh, turns the focus more on Michelle, the author, um, than the killer himself. Um, and I thought it was just such a well-done show. Um, Chris, I think you hadn't had access to the entire series when you initially wrote your review. Is that correct? No, I did have the whole thing. Oh, and, you did? You did? Okay. That, that last episode, man, that really, uh, it, 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 get, it got me very emotional because it's, oh. really, it's really about her and about how just shitty and tragic it is that she died right before you know she had a chance to finish this this masterwork and that there's like uh there's like that shot where like they're dismantling the set that looks like her desk and it Mm -hmm. it, like it just it like made me just feel awful it's it's so good but it's really uh sad yeah very very sad very very well done and that last episode in particular because um uh Michelle, the character, I guess, if you want to call her that, like, uh, dies earlier in, you know, right, right at the end of, I think, the fifth episode, or maybe the the fourth episode. And the the anyway, the final episode of the show is more about what happens after her death. And um, there's so much of that final episode that is devoted to the survivors of the the this Golden State Killer and and slash East Area Rapist slash, uh, you know, uh, all, all of these different terrible nicknames that he had over the years because of the, the horrifying things that he did to these people and the way that the show human like like really centers the vision around these victims and um and their you know them reclaiming their their power and their place in society and everything um and and sort of like pushing this asshole murderer off to the side and uh the way that the show handles that material um, I thought was really, really well done. So yes, uh, I'll be gone in the dark is, uh, I would call it a tough watch, but, um, overall pretty rewarding and, um, definitely like a, 
a more humanizing piece of true crime than a lot of the other stuff that I've seen. So uh, that is I'll Be Gone in the Dark. It's on HBO, HBO Max, all that kind of stuff. You can find it there. I also rewatched Top Gun. Uh, I don't know why. This was on, it, it's streaming right now on Amazon and Hulu. I think we were just looking for something light and sort of fun to watch. And um, man, Top Gun, like, uh, it's just it's a really uh it's kind of a goofy movie um but man you can see tom cruise's star power just like radiating off the screen uh i really enjoy all of the the dynamics between him and val kilmer in this movie they're they're so over the top and so really like ridiculous when you take a step back and and like think about it for a second um but i really just enjoy this movie it's it's a, a childhood favorite of mine and um the action, I think, is what really stuck out to me this time. Like how well uh, Tony Scott, who directed this movie, um, how great a job he did at making sure that you know exactly where everybody is in relation to everybody else at all times. And, you know, even when they're in uh, like whatever F4 fighter jets or whatever the, the model of jets they're in, you know, up in the sky going Mach 4 or whatever the hell. So um, the fact that that you know exactly where all of the, you know, who, who are the, who the pilots are in those planes and where they are in relation to each other is, um, is a really, uh, impressive achievement, I think. And, uh, right after we finished the movie, my, I fired up the YouTube app on my TV and just blew up the trailer for Top Gun Maverick, the upcoming sequel. And like, wow, we, my wife and I both were just like very impressed with the way that that movie looks compared to the original Top Gun. Just like the cinematography has gotten so much crisper and and uh, clearer and like the um, the way that Joseph Kaczynski, who's directing the new movie, um, has like sort of tried to recapture a little bit of that uh, frenetic pacing of, of Tony Scott, at least, you know, from what we can see in the trailer, but actually like makes it look and feel much more modern than this eighties movie is, um, is really impressive. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to Top Gun Maverick, especially with a rewatch. So freshly under my belt. So, uh, that is Top Gun and you can watch it on Amazon prime and Hulu right now. And then finally I watched, uh, this, uh, short play or, or musical called 21 chump street, which is on YouTube right now. And, uh, I'm actually going to be writing about it for the quarantine stream. So you can, you can stay tuned to slashfilm.com for like my full thoughts on it. But um, in 2011, some police officers in Florida went undercover and actually went into high school, like posing as students, which is essentially the plot of the TV show and the movie 21 jump street, because they were trying to bust these kids who were dealing drugs. And, um, this uh, story, 21 Chump Street, was originally a segment on an episode of This American Life in, a year later in 2012. And a couple years after that, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who uh, wrote and, and uh, starred in Hamilton, premiered this 14-minute one-act musical adaptation of that story. And it's been performed a couple different times. Anthony Ramos, who uh, plays Lawrence and um, uh, Philip Hamilton in... Hamilton and also stars in uh, I think the the upcoming movie version of In the Heights uh, is the lead character in this and it's basically about this this undercover 
police officer who goes into the school and then this this poor kid who is like a straight a student who falls in love with this girl who he thinks is like a normal high school senior but is actually an undercover cop and the how she sort of manipulates him into buying drugs for her and the fallout that happens as a result of that and it's uh it's only 14 minutes long so you can find you know it's a it's a very easy breezy watch um and i think for a lot of people who find Lin-Manuel Miranda as a performer to be a little much, a little annoying. And like, I know there are a lot of people who just like straight up don't like his voice. And I think Peter, you were saying like, after you watch Hamilton, like he just, you didn't find him to be like the greatest actor. Uh, He is in this, but he plays a narrator who is very just like a, a straightforward kind of character there's there's almost no like personality yeah. to him in this movie or in this uh this uh, stage adaptation musical kind of thing it's mostly he's just there as like an exposition machine in between scenes to sort of tie the whole story together so um i think for for the the small segment of the population out there who probably uh who, who <laughs> might find him annoying um i think this is going to be a, a really easy watch so um yeah i just i listened to the npr the um the This American Life uh, uh, segment after watching this. And it, it's really, um, it's impressive the way that uh, Miranda was able to adapt, um, you know, such a, a, a interesting story into this really short one act musical. And it's free to watch on YouTube right now. So it's called 21 Chump Street. Yeah, it's funny when you mentioned this, I was like, I haven't seen this, but this sounds familiar. It's because I heard it on This American Life. Uh, so I'm gonna have to check this out. But I do want to say I do not find Lin-Manuel Miranda to be annoying or I like as a person. I like him. I, I don't know. I just was, I I feel like he wasn't at the level of acting of everybody else in Hamilton. Yeah. I I feel like, I feel like what you can say about Hamilton is Lin-Manuel Miranda is a good actor. Everyone in Hamilton is a great actor. (laughs) It's like he has the misfortune of acting alongside, uh, a bunch of people who are extremely talented. So they kind of make him look worse in the process, in the process. But it's also like the spotlights on him. It's named Hamilton. Do you know what I mean? Like, like there's a lot of pressure there and it it feels like, yeah, the supporting cast is just like, yeah, it all balances out because he wrote the whole thing. So I I sort of, I think it all, it all shakes (laughs) out pretty well for him in the end. But, um, and like just being able to, to keep all that stuff in your head and, and like write it and the music and perform it and all of that. I mean, it's a, it's a super impressive, uh, you know, accomplishment, but um, I know there are a ton of people out there that, that, um, that I've heard of that are like, ah, I don't know, man. Like I just, I don't really like his voice or whatever, like little qualms they might have with him uh, as a performer. And I think they, they, uh, won't have much to complain about if they watch this. Have you seen, this has nothing to do with anything and I'm sorry to make this go longer, but there's a trend on TikTok right now, apparently, of TikTok teens making fun of Lin-Manuel Miranda. Oh no, uh, what are no. they saying? Well, just like, I think it's just his, you know, over earnestness, like that whole persona. It, they find very cheesy or something, so they just kind of mimic, like mock him or uh, make fun of him in that way, in the, the way that you do on TikTok, I guess. I don't really know. I'm not a teen anymore. So yeah, but apparently he's become the new target of derision for the Gen Zers of our world. Well, that that's what I'm saying, I guess, with this uh, show is they will have nothing to make fun of because he's he's very like normal, like anybody could have stepped in and played this narrator role, uh, even though he did a really good job of adapting and creating some catchy music for uh, this, uh, this American Life uh, show adaptation. So 21 Chump Street, check it out. 
You know, before we jump into what we've been eating, there's one thing I also wanted I forgot to mention and what I've been doing. Jacob, do you, do you like decorate your house for Halloween? Like, do you have like Halloween decorations? I have a bin in my garage of uh, ghosts I hang from my trees and I have a projector that projects ghosts onto my house. But I don't go all out. And Chris, I feel like you have you must have some kind of Halloween like celebratory decorations, right? Yeah, I don't go. I mean, I wish I could go crazier. I just don't have the money for that. But I, I yeah. put up I put up some ghosts and stuff like that. Yeah, ghosts. Um, this I don't know what happened last week. I got or Kitra got sent a link to there's these things called spooky towns. Have you ever heard of these? They're like little Christmas villages, but they're for Halloween. And they're uh, you put them on display to celebrate the Halloween season. And uh, Kitra got, or I think Kitra saw an ad on her Instagram, and they have like these little houses. And they had one that was like a dog, like a I don't know, a dog house, and it had dogs with uh, Halloween outfits on them and stuff. I don't know, I don't know how it happened. She showed me this, and then we ended up falling down this hole on YouTube of these like spooky towns. They sell them at like Michaels and stuff. Uh, and, uh, th- these things are like elaborate, like they have like light up things and moving, like, uh, th- they're very like, there's kinetic, they have like theme park rides and there's like g- houses with ghosts that like pop out and they have like a one this year that's like a graveyard dance and there's like dead people coming out of the ground and dancing around and it's like this big graveyard set up, uh, Kitra and I went to Michael's to check these out uh, like idiots uh, because I, f- I feel like so ashamed to admit this because like this is like, like I feel like old people buy these like Christmas villages and stuff. But these like actually look so cool. And there's like we follow on this rabbit hole on YouTube because there's people that have collections that I've def- I guess I've been doing these for like a couple decades now. It's not like something new. And there's people that have collections where it's like their entire like basement is a entire spooky town with all these things and all of them are lit up and moving and stuff uh <laughs> jacob have you ever have you ever seen these have you ever uh felt the the want to buy a spooky town i have absolutely seen these on display every year at michael's and i, I too have been hit by some targeted instagram ads for these recently specifically for the ones that are built after famous haunted houses like i've been hit with the one that's the spooky town house that looks like the amdeville house i've seen that one at least 50 times my Instagram feed over the past two weeks or so. Uh, so, yes, I'm very familiar with these. I have not bought any because every time I look at them, I go, these are really cool. But n- no, I can't. <laughs> I, I can't justify this under any circumstance. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's going to become a problem. I feel like we, we might do a thing where, like, we buy one a year. We make it a tradition and we slowly build the town because they, they can be quite expensive. I think they start at like 40 bucks and they go up to like 150 or something. Uh, but I've also been told that if you wait until september all that stuff goes on discount at michael's because they move they start moving the christmas stuff in in september so already the halloween stuff goes on discount so we might wait until then and and see but uh, i don't know uh, so we went to michael's and uh checked out their their spooky towns which they hadn't they hadn't even plugged in yet They're like we, we were the guys that showed up to halloween way too early but they were on display they just weren't plugged in uh anyways uh let's move on to what we've been eating Brad, what have you been eating this week? Um, so there's a whole new uh, array of Lay's potato chips called Flavor Icons that are modeled after certain 
um, foods that are like specific to certain regions. Um, and so I've been trying to find them and I finally, uh, got a hold of them and I've only tried one so far. I have, I have the, um, other flavors to try. So I'm just going to talk about the Philly cheesesteak one, um, based out of, uh, Chris's famous hometown, Philadelphia. Uh, apparently they based this on Gino's steaks, not the other one, which is, is that Pat steaks? Is that right, Chris? Ah uh, yes, Pat's and I mean there are a lot of yeah, but they're like the two big like ones. Right, they're like right next to each other, so yeah, they're the ones that everyone pits against each other. Yeah, so do I, they fight? Do, do, they, do they engage in civil war? I, I wish, but no. Although them. Gino's Gino's is the racist one, so I'll put that. They put up a sign that said "Speak English or you can't order from us." So nice. Yeah, Gino's. So I, I am not a fan of Gino's strictly for that. I mean, I don't, I don't eat meat anymore anyway, so I don't go to either. But when I was growing up, my my dad, uh, you know, was Philly born and raised, was always uh, a Pat's guy. So I, by default, was a Pat's guy. And then Gino's became racist. So that solidified that. Well, then as a way to stick it to Gino's, I'll just say these chips are just okay. um they're they taste more um they taste similar to like cheddar and sour cream chips but then there there is like a um, uh, a smoky like meat uh aftertaste that comes with them after you've had a few of the chips so they're good but not like anything where i'm like oh man these are my favorite new chips um but so i have a few of the other flavors that i'll try and i'll talk about next time uh there's there's a kettle cooked new york style uh pizza um wavy very um variation of car- uh, carnitas street tacos and then uh just the regular lays nashville hot chicken and then the one that i haven't found yet is there's one for uh chili relleno so i'm gonna try and track those down but uh yeah the philly cheese steaks one are okay and apparently gino's steaks is racist <laughs> what else have you been eating um, I also tried, so my, um, back when my uh, girlfriend went on a trip to see her family for a little bit, they went to a, a Japanese grocery store, and I know you did some some Japanese snacking recently, um, and her nieces uh, picked out these gummy snacks for me, just because they liked that Super Mario was on them. They're these Super Mario gummy snacks that are from Japan, um, and I, since everything on it is in Japanese, I have no idea what the flavors are or anything like that, but there are two different kinds that come, they come up for some reason, each of the gummies comes in an individual wrapper. And initially I thought that they were like these hard candies that you had to suck on, but they're gummies and they're a little more firm than regular gummies. And they, they have a vague soda pop flavor. So I haven't looked into see like what the actual flavors are yet, but, um, I, I guess they were pretty good because they they're tasty, even though I don't know what the flavor is. <laughs> um, and then on a, on the same uh, gummy snacks track, Trader Joe's has these mango mango uh, fruit and yogurt gummy candies, and uh, I I love mango as a flavor in general. Um, and these are really really good. They're they're soft. They're not too sweet, and they have um, some of them have like. An additional like mango uh, gummy kind of addition to them, and so um, he's definitely is among some of the the better gummy candies that I've had, uh, and those are at Trader Joe's. And then um, Starbucks has a new uh, like refresher drink, one of their like cool drinks. It's an iced guava passion fruit drink, and this is like an awesome uh, drink that like will quench your thirst during the summer. It's, it it literally is very cool and refreshing. Uh, and the fruit flavors in it are are fantastic, um, and it's it's a lot less heavy than some of their other, uh, you know, iced coffee dessert kind of drinks. 
Have you gone out and looked for Mandalorian Baby Yoda cereal yet, Brad? I keep checking. I think right. I think it's still currently only at Sam's Club, um, and so I, I don't. We don't have a Sam's Club membership. We only have a Costco membership. Maybe I'll ask my parents and see if I can borrow the membership card to go find it. But I know it's supposed to be coming to Walmart in um, the single box variety soon because at Sam's Club it's like a, a big double box with two bags in it. Um, but I, I'm, I'm on the hunt for it. Yeah, we we went and looked this weekend. And we did not find it at Walmart. So, wah, wah, wah. Um, <laughs> curious to hear your review of that when that comes out. Oh, I will have one. Okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. HT, what have you been playing this week? I participated in my first uh, RPG this week. I played a Pokemon one shot with a couple of my friends, and um, it was supposed to be a quick little mission where you know picking up a package for Professor Oak at Viridian City and uh, catching some Pokemon on the way. But it took us a little bit, of, uh, quite a long time because uh, most of us have never done this before. But it was a lot of fun and um, a kind of a good way to sort of our test our. our like dip our toes in the RPG playing community. And um, I caught a ghastly and uh, it we're best friends now. So it's great. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I had, a, uh, I started with a Piplup and I petted it too. So that was like one of my, one of my actions as well. I'm having a blast playing, playing a Pokemon RPG, but um, we're like kind of building up to play, um, a, I guess a real one where we want to do call of Cthulhu and um Speaking of Lovecraftian, so that's something that we're kind of, uh, I guess, preparing for, and we want to do that next. And um, so, yeah, it's a lot of fun, and um, I'm excited to just, to try out more. HT, is that curiosity? Do you know what system you use for the Pokemon One Shot? Uh, no. Um, oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> system? What? What is the system? <laughs> um. Well, we played on Discord, and um. My friend, who was the like dungeon master, the Pokemon master, um, used a lot of bots to make sure that we could do like the like the dice rolling mm-hmm. and um, everything through Discord, which was actually quite convenient. Everything was on there, and um, we did a video call too, so that like so that was all like in one place. And we also used something called uh, Roll Twenty, um, which is a website where we could use like a map to visualize where we were, and. Um, yeah, I think that's like the majority. I, I'm, uh, as you can tell, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of <laughs> my friends just telling me what to do, but I'm having a lot of fun doing it. I'm just curious because I, I use I use Roll Twenty for my D and D games. It doesn't work great for every RPG, but it works well for that. Uh, this, this is less of a concern and more of just me being curious because Call of Cthulhu is a great system, but man, it is a system that requires some work from the person running it. So I'm just curious uh, what system what the Pokemon game was and. Uh, and how much experience they have because Call of Cthulhu is is harder than D anD D for sure, and I, I'm always curious. It, it's a tough one. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, yeah. That's why we're kind of. I, I mean, I mean, maybe we didn't do too well at, prepare, at preparing for our next <laughs> one, but you know, it's it's all like a, a learning experience. And yeah, I'm hoping it'll be okay. My friend, who's you know uh, dungeon mastering for this one, she hasn't dungeon mastered before either, but she, I think she's kind of like using this experience as like a way to sort of build her build the game for Call of Cthulhu. So um, I don't really know exactly what system she'll be using, but I think we'll probably be doing something similar with um, with Discord using a combination of Discord and Roll Twenty. Well, I'll, I'll send you some YouTube videos uh, uh, about how to run a great Call of Cthulhu game uh, because it, it can, because running any kind of horror game is tricky. Uh, and Call of Cthulhu uh, is 
a brutal system to learn uh, for people who like are, are are new to running RPGs. Uh, but it's, it's really rewarding. So I will I will send you some links to send to your friend, not to be a jerk, but to hopefully be helpful. <laughs> okay, thank you. No worries. We need all the help we can get. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brad, what have you been playing? So there's a new game called uh, Fall Guys that just came out. Um, at, at least on PlayStation 4. I don't know if it's an exclusive or if it's also available on Xbox, but it's um, free to download for PlayStation Plus members. And some of the people that I play uh, Call of Duty with, some of my friends noticed it and they said that it looked like fun. And it's basically like a combination of the Battle Royale template, but not quite as uh, complex or involved because it's um, the setup is that you're like this cute little cartoon person and you are... Uh, facing off in like an elimination game um, with a bunch of other people online playing through these mini games essentially of like various obstacle courses or objective games so it's kind of like um, the battle royale gameplay meets like mario party or any number of those mini game kind of things Um, and it's really simple really easy to jump into online it's it's pretty fun the controls feel a little clunky uh, to me, like there's, it's really only three movements you do besides running around. You can either jump, you can dive, or you can grab onto somebody. Um, and so it's it's fun. It can be a little frustrating at times, um, and it's it's kind of chaos too because there's I think there's up to sixty people in a round. But as you go on, it's elimination. So like you play one round, and only a certain number of people qualify for the next one, and then the next game eliminates more people based on whatever the objective is until you get down to the one person who is uh the winner so uh like i said really simple game really fun if you got a playstation plus uh account then you can download it for free and just play online with whoever's there cool i think that that brings us to the end of today's slash on daily you can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com you can find this podcast in itunes google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com and rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Monday. Peter, we have no time, no time for you to delay. I've opened up the grandchildren book of insult, offense, and affrontery. Sharp retorts, repost, cost equips, implied put downs by Lewis A. Safian. Open to the last numbered page of the book, page 406, the nicknames section. Are you all ready to receive your nicknames from Lewis A. Safian? Jacob, you, you, you don't have to yell. Give me that nickname. Give me that nickname. Uh, Peter, Peter Sveta, they call him Pie. He has lots of crust. Yeah. (laughs) Ben Ben Pearson. They call him Plymouth Rock. He has a shape like a Plymouth and a head like a rock. Damn. Uh, Chris. They call him uh, Pneumatic Drill. He's such a bore. Mm. (laughs) HT. They call her River. The biggest part of her is her mouth. Oh. Damn. (laughs) And Brad. They call him Truck. He always has a load on. Oof, okay. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Peter, don't you repeat it? No, Call no, Brad no. Truck. He no, always no, has the load on. No. And the, the reason why we're in such a hurry, guys, this is v- such important news, is the very back of the Grand Truman Book of Insult, Offense, and Affrontery, Sharp Torture Posts, Cost Equips, Implied Putdowns by Louis A. Safian is an also available section. <gasps> so if we ever run out of insults from Louis A. Safian... Uh, Mr. Herb Reich has 
2,501 things that really piss me off. A catalog of insults and intrusions that are sure to ruin my day. Uh... There is a Freudian slip is when you say one thing but mean your mother. 879 funny, funky, hip, and hilarious puns from Gary Blake. And if you don't want that, there's Ronald Stanza. Ronald Stanza has, there was a young man from Nantucket, a thousand and one lewd limericks guaranteed to amuse oh, no. and offend. Are but all wait, these there's they more. pen names? Like, is, uh, he writes yes, did he just write uh, five well, books under different uh, pen names? My guess, these are all Louis A. Safian's uh, lovers. Uh, the Illustrated <laughs> Dictionary. The Illustrated Dictionary of Snark. A snide, sarcastic guy to verbal sparring, comebacks, irony, insults, and much more from Lawrence Dorfman. But wait, there's more. The Snark Handbook. Insult Edition. Comebacks, taunts, and affronteries. Also by our man, Lawrence Dorfman. And finally, 5,000 side-splitting uh, jokes and one-liners compiled by Grant Tucker. So I'm letting you know, this will never end, ladies and gentlemen. If this book gets destroyed in a fire, there are more options from the extended Louis A. Safian Screw Club. Okay, we need you to hack into Jacob's computer and prevent him from ordering any of these books. Too Does late. anybody know how to do that? It's too late, Peter. He has all of them I mean... already. <laughs> Bum, bum, bum!